0: Welcome to the New
1: Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone. I am your New Books Network and African-American Studies host, Mikhail Carter. And today we have Dr. Jonathan Finnerson with us to discuss his book, Building the Black Arts Movement. Thanks for speaking with us
1: today, Dr. Oh, uh, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks. And so before we take a deep dive into your book, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what led you to your research?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm a California kid. Um, I'm from Los Angeles to be more precise. And uh, I kind of grew up in a, a really big family, tight-knit family. Um, and it just so happens to be a lot of my family is like kind of educators or working education. Um, and so I've always kind of growing up in an intellectual environment. Um, and, but anyway, so I grew up in California. I was kind of running around with no direction and I was lucky enough to take a black studies class one time at California State University, Dominguez Hills. And that kind of got me on my course, gave me some direction in life. Um, and after that, I kind of stuck with black studies for you know for all of my degrees. And um, it eventually led me to Cornell University where I, um, spent a lot of time in a room that was actually named after Hoyt Fuller. It was kind of the heart and soul of our intellectual community at the Africana Studies and Research Center at Cornell. And, I, you know, when I was there, I had heard of him before, but I hadn't really seen much writing on him. So I was like, maybe I should think about doing some work on this guy. And um, everyone there was like, yeah, that's a really good idea. Um, He was kind of like one of those people who a lot of people knew his name and knew who he was, but nobody had really sat down to like kind of study his influence. So that's kind of what led me to it is kind of a long road from California to upstate New York and then ultimately to UMass where I did my dissertation um, in the WB Du Bois department and was actually fortunate enough to study with a lot of folks who who knew him personally. Um, So yeah, that's kind of my background and what led me to the project.
2: Wow. Yeah, that definitely worked out. <laughs> um, and so in your book, you argue um, that Fuller was not only responsible for designing and framing the Black arts movement, but he pretty much oversaw construction. And so could you kind of talk to us about why we haven't really heard of um, Fuller before or people haven't written about him?
1: Definitely. I mean, Fuller was like one of of several um, important players who they're all talking to each other, exchanging ideas and really trying to think through the ways that art could be used to a kind of political, um, for a political agenda. And so, um, you know, he's, he's in conversation with people like Harold Cruz and Amiri Baraka, um, James Baldwin, all these different people who are thinking about this intersection between um, Black arts and Black politics. And so, you know, um, he's he's one of those key keep, keep, keep people at the table. Um, I think there's a few reasons why most of us don't know about him. I mean, for a long time, the only thing scholars really uh, remembered him for was his essay, uh, Toward a Black Aesthetic, which has been kind of canonized in all the major African American literary and literary theory um, anthologies. but. During the maybe I'd say the uh, late 80s and 90s, there was a kind of concerted effort to turn away from the Black Arts Movement and to kind of um, kind of see they it was a people framed the Black Arts Movement as being like passe or like uh, unsophisticated or like a movement that lacked rigor. Um, so even some people saw it as backwards or unworthy of study, and this is the same moment that kind of gave birth to. You know, Barbara Christian talks about in the race for theory, where a lot of black intellectuals are really turning to kind of high theory, European theory to kind of talk about black, um, black writing, black arts. Well, also, it's the it's the point where there's a emergence of like professional African-American criticism and a professional class of African-American critics. And so fuller kind of gets written off during that time period. and so he's like, as one of the many players in the Black arts movement, he becomes kind of marginalized completely. And some key figures are kind of, um, are, are held up as kind of the represent, representatives of the Black arts movement. But usually what that, mean, what that meant was that people don't think beyond those thinkers or those individuals. So Amiri Baraka becomes held up as like, the central player and he is absolutely central, but he becomes like the kind of face of the black arts movement. And, and so many people who are there along with the Amir Baraka, some, they kind of fall and slip into the cracks, you know, and so Fuller is one of those people. But the other thing about it too, is that Hoyt Fuller was somebody who was really comfortable in the margins. He was somebody who never sought out the spotlight. He never wanted a lot of attention. He kind of um, thrived by Uh, creating spaces for other people to, um, you know, be recognized or to have space to create. And so part of it is also too about how he moved in the world and how he, what his role, what he saw his role as. He was more of a stage builder. He was not the kind, not a performer for uh, after that. He was more the person who wants to put the stage together for people to perform. And so I think those two things kind of made it so that he oftentimes gets kind of uh, left out of the narrative of that time period, if that makes sense.
2: It does, thank you. And so for listeners who may not be familiar with the Black Arts Movement, could you briefly tell us about the movement and the political terrain of the 60s?
1: Absolutely, so the Black Arts Movement was this real created explosion that took place in the 1960s and 70s. It was um, a time period where you had a tremendous outpouring of poetry, of plays, of theater, of uh, music. And it's tied to this idea of this growing kind of popularity of a notion or ideas of self-determination and um, self-definition on the part of African Americans. It's really tied to, to be frank, to black nationalism in a lot of ways. And so it's this moment where there's all of this kind of artistic creativity that's also really trying to think through politics right um and you know all social movements political movements they have a kind of artistic production or creativity as part of them whether it's uh chants whether i mean protest chants or you know whether it's signs that people bring to rallies there's always an art element to all social movements and so black arts was really tied to black power. In fact, Larry Neal is oftentimes quoted as uh, for saying, you know, that the black arts was the spiritual and aesthetic sister of the black power movement. So it's just this moment in the 1960s and 70s where black art becomes like a real important part of a, a larger political conversation and Hoyt Fuller is one of the people who helps foster that conversation through the Negro Digest, Black World Magazine.
2: For sure, I really appreciate it. Um, I really appreciate your answer, um, especially the, um, the role with the Black Arts Movement and also um, Black Power. And so my next question is, um, well, not really a question, question and statement more so, but one thing that you did was kind of look at the Black Arts Movement through more of an intellectual lens compared to one that was solely just artistic or cultural lands and so i wanted to see if like could you talk to us a little bit about that message
1: absolutely i mean i think one of the things that oftentimes people fail to kind of think about when they think about the black arts movement is that it was very much rooted in political ideology people were trying to work at this intersection between art and politics and so they're all thinking about political political ideologies and political practice as they create. And so one of the things I really wanted to do was to not just look at the artwork, but really look at how people are thinking about the world beyond the art, right? And the way that the art actually helps to foster broader conversations about the world. Um, another thing, reason why I, I took this approach was because The majority of of the writing that um, about the Black arts movement actually comes from um, scholars who are interested in literary text. And while poetry and plays and to a lesser degree novels were central to the Black arts movement, there's a way that we can read any text um, and our kind of analysis of text becomes about our ability to read them versus what's happening in the text. And so I wanted to kind of shift away from that to say, all right. All these people are thinking about politics as they think about aesthetic questions, and so why are they so driven by this kind of uh, point of of um, convergence between the two? And you know, if we think through the politics, how might that help us think about the moment differently? And so that's kind of what I was trying to do. Um, there's no way to talk about the Black Arts Movement without talking about. Uh, black nationalism, but also an emergent discourse around uh, gender and feminism, and so I kind of felt like, if what if I kind of centered those and then worked my way out? So that's kind of what I was trying to do.
2: Thank you. And so <clears throat> we have Ebony magazine and mm-hmm. Jet magazine. Um, they're also owned by Johnson Publishing Company, and they were pretty much viewed by many people as like the magazines for the Black bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. And so how was the Negro Negro Digest or the Black World, like, what, I guess, role did it play? Or how was it distinct from these two magazines?
1: Yeah, this is a really good question. And it's one that I sometimes feel like I didn't um, do the best job at actually dealing with in the text. But one way to think about Johnson Publications is to think about the magazines as being, at least early on, that they were on a kind of political spectrum. Right. That even Johnson publications had a political spectrum of, uh, you know, of the most left publications, the more centered publications and then the more conservative publications. Right. And so I think when you think about Johnson publications, you can kind of see Ebony as probably prior to 1969, I would say, um, the most conservative of the publications coming out of Johnson Publications, right? It was more concerned with uh, consumerism, more concerned with like a uh, kind of sensational stories, stories about celebrities, so forth and so on. Then you had Jet Magazine, which I think um, was a little bit to the left or more progressive than Ebony Magazine. And that's mainly because Jet Magazine had uh, gave a lot of space to local stories of the civil rights movement. And so you kind of still see, you can still see Jet Magazine having some some kind of uh, movement or, or a kind of progressive political orientation in it, but it is still balanced with some of the stories, the kinds of stories about celebrities that you would get in Ebony. And then to the left of that, I think Negro Digest was the kind of most the the, the outlier of all the magazines. I mean, Hoyt Fuller was very committed to having a really um, kind of in-depth conversation about Black politics. He always wanted to include uh, a diverse range of political voices, far more uh, diverse than what Johnson allowed for in Ebony and even Jet. So he always wanted to have Black nationalists as part of the magazine. You know, he always wanted to have um, Pan-Africanists as part of his magazine and part of the conversation. He was open. He's, he was open, but not open enough, in some people's opinion, to having more kind of leftist Marxist analysis, um, but far more open than Johnson. And so there's a kind of way that Negro Digest becomes the left wing of the Johnson Publishing Company. Um, and, you know, it's a really small magazine. It's cheap. It fits in your back pocket, you know, but it was a way for working class people to really engage, Black working class people to really engage in these broader political conversations. And oftentimes Fuller paid a price for it, for, for sparking these conversations in, in a Johnson publishing, you know, um, outlet. Uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of how I, sit, how I would situate Negro Digest in, in terms of the Johnson Publishing Company. hope that answers your question.
0: <laughs> yes, it does. My next question would be, um, could you talk to us about Fuller's
2: goals and probably like those global visions that he had of the movement?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. He was a very I mean, Fuller was a very ambitious uh, thinker and it had ambitious political goals. And he believed in the power of art um, probably far more than I do, uh, but but far more than most people. right? But he was one of those people he really wanted black artists to have full control over their artistic production and also the criticism that uh, that was tied to that artistic production. So for him it was important that black creators black creative individuals, artists like not only did they have the resources to create but also that they had the institutions and the support um, that is tied to all the all of that stuff right um, He also really wanted um, Black artists um, and critics to develop a sense of values that was divorced from um, external ideas about white supremacy or external forces of white supremacy. But also that was divorced of the kind of internal uh, white supremacy that exists amongst black folks, you know, that we often don't acknowledge right so he wanted us to kind of black people African Americans Black people across the diaspora to develop a sense of like um, a value system and a way of thinking about art that was internal to their own community that grew out of their own values and their own experiences. Um, He was also a Pan-Africanist, right? So he fundamentally believed that Black people in Africa and the African diaspora needed to develop sustained relationships, right? And, And have a kind of mutual reliance upon one another and a common support, right? He thought that um, African-Americans, in fact, needed to be strategic partners in the kind of transformation of post-colonial Africa. And at the same time, right, he wanted Africa to emerge as a, a transformed and unified global power that would offset the, I guess, power of the United States or the Soviet Union. Right, He wanted Africa to emerge as its own kind of independent power in the world. Um, he really thought about big global issues. But that the, the the really cool thing about him, I think, is that he also was really rooted in local communities. So he lived in Chicago. You know, he was in charge of running a local writers' group and a local storefront on the south side. So even as he traveled the world and thought about the bigger world, he also thought that it was important to like bring that world to people at the local level and vice versa. Um, So he's always, even when he travels, he's always trying to find these kind of local Black institutions and connect them with other local Black institutions from around the world. He's kind of trying to craft this Pan-African network amongst all these independent Black institutions, you know. Um, You think about, like, Black bookstores, you know, and how they're dying off, unfortunately. Or you think about, like, um, black dance companies or black theater companies. Like Hoyt Fuller was the kind of person who wanted to know all of those things in each individual city, but then put those different local entities in conversation with each other nationally and then internationally. So he was somebody who had like really big ambitious goals. You know, um, he was interested in a transformation of society um, and that kind of uh, oriented his approach to, to life in some ways.
2: Wow, thank you for that. When you think of the typical narrative of um, the Black arts movement, and then also the Black power movement, and their artists or leaders, or even just male figures, you know, you typically think of people like Amir Baraka, Stokey Carmichael, but what's surprising about Fuller is, well, he doesn't really fit to this typical description. And so um, in the last chapter, you kind of shift from Fuller's involvement in the Black arts movement and his involvement with the Black world and Negro Digest to uh, focus on his sexuality and the cycle of silences in the archives. And so I have two questions. Um, Why did you decide to take the shift? And also, what does Fuller's sexuality tell us about the movement? Or um, how should this make us? reconsider what we thought we knew about the movement?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a really good question. Um, I think the first thing we have to really come to terms with is that part of our understanding of the movement is or our limits, our limitations with our understanding of the movement. They are a reflection of the scholarship, right? I think for many years and successive waves of scholarship have kind of framed the black arts movement in this one way. And oftentimes, you know, Baraka is the key player, if not the, sometimes the only player, right? Um, And I don't want to diminish Baraka's role, because Baraka obviously is uh, central, and he's also um, one of the most important African-American intellectuals in the last 75 years, right? But there is a way that oftentimes when we try to um, when we look at the m- movement through someone like Baraka, we oftentimes miss so much, right? And that's what I w- was trying to do. If we kind of shift our lens to think about the movement through someone like Hoy Fuller, what possibilities does it open up? What uh, new ways of thinking does it open up about the movement? So one of the things I really wanted to do was kind of not approach the movement in the same way that it's been done so many times through Baraka, um, although he's absolutely important and it's essential. I um, also think going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, there was this moment where a lot of people were um, very critical of the black arts movement as if there was nothing redeemable about the movement. And um, what that resulted in was people not asking new questions about the movement. And so Hoyt Fuller as a kind of prism to think about the movement gives us that opportunity to do it. And one of the ways, like you say, is about around his sexuality. You know, um, when you look at the scholarship uh, on the black arts movement, particularly in the late eighties and early nineties, there's a way that black nationalism is framed as um, dogmatically sexist, dogmatically homophobic. And what it results in is this idea that there are no women at the table contesting ideas of, you know, of uh, sexism and no men at the table contesting ideas of sexism but also it results in this idea that in nationalist spaces there are no queer folks right queer black folks and so Hoyt Fuller actually allows us to kind of trouble all of those ideas right um and we should be clear you know I I it's important to talk about I thought it was important to talk about his sexuality for that reason But we should also be clear that our ideas of sexuality have changed so much since that time. And part of uh, reckoning with his story is also reckoning with the distance that we've traveled since uh, the 1970s, right? And so that's part of what I wanted to do with that last chapter was to really get us to wrestle with that. But also to kind of, um, I wanted us to get rid of, or I wanted us to think about this moment without creating boogeymen, right? I wanted us to think about the folks in this story, Hoyt Fuller, Baraka, and so many other people, as just regular people who have their shortcomings, have their strengths, but the incredible thing about them is that they came together and they wanted to kind of rethink the world and radically transform the world that they lived in. And yes, they came up short oftentimes, right? but it's okay. Like that's, that's the, that's kind of the nature of being human. Right. Um, and so, yeah, Hoyt Fuller's sexuality became a, a piece of the story for me of a, a vital piece of the story for several reasons. I mean, I think another thing was that, um, most people who had heard of him, um, if the, most people who knew him knew about his sexuality, knew he was a man who slept with other men. Right. Um, it was kind of like, uh, what people might refer to as an open secret amongst people in the movement, right? But then there's this kind of way that as I started to write about him, most people didn't know that. Most people who weren't involved in the movement, people who just studied it had no idea about his sexuality. And so there was also a push for people to make that the central part of the story. But I I wanted to make it a piece of the story, but not the totality of the story, right? And that was mainly because that was something that he himself wrestled with he was not resolved around it, right? He did not benefit from the kind of uh, post-Stonewall transformation around sexuality in the way that many of us have been able to, not just in our thinking, but also in what's become, you know, socially uh, normal or normalized, right? And so those are some of the things I was kind of wrestling with in that last chapter. Um, You know, I wrote that chapter after the turn in um, Black queer studies that happens in, in Black studies itself. And I wanted the book to reflect that. And I wanted it to reflect the fact that I was thinking through this stuff as well. And that people have been thinking through it for generations and dealing with these issues in very complex ways. Um, And that we also can't be anachronistic in our own thinking, that we really have to struggle to kind of capture the way people are thinking about things when they're thinking about them and not do that with a sense of judgment, if that makes sense.
2: It does. Thank you
1: that's a very choppy answer
2: no it was it was a great answer a wonderful answer for sure and so I only have two questions left and so first question what takeaways do you want the audience to gain after reading your book Mm -hmm. and then lastly we cannot let you go without asking this question but what are you working on next
1: yeah um (laughs) I think about the takeaways a lot um and you know it's funny they change <laughs> but the thing about it is the book's done so you don't know what people are taking away f- um from it but there are a few things I think about right the first thing i think um i want uh people to take away from the book right is that the black arts movement like all social movements was very complex it was very messy it was very chaotic um And those of us who are kind of invested in social movements, um, we stand to benefit from actually dealing honestly with the complexity and chaos of the social movements, right? I think there's there's been a kind of growing desire on the part of scholars to clean um, things up or to make things uh, more uh, acceptable or legible to an audience sometimes just because you know, we, we tend to think that our audience likes uh, narratives that end in kind of heroic manners. But also I think there's still, there's a way that a lot of us write with this kind of thinking like, oh, you know we don't wanna do damage to any of the, of the topics that we're dealing with. But I think for those of us who are invested in social movements, we really have to like be okay with getting into the complexity and the messiness and the chaos, chaos of it all. And, and um, coming to terms with the fact that whether we're writing about people 50 years ago or 100 years ago, they're just people, right? And that they have all the shortcomings that we have, right? I think the other thing I want um, people to take away from this book is that all social movements really need people who are selfless, right? People who work for the benefit of the collective but don't, um, aren't seeking a return, right? They're not interested in fame or money or anything else, but they just really are interested in working um, for the greater good of the collective. Um, and that's one thing that I think Hoyt Fuller really embodied. Like he wasn't interested in being famous. He was interested in creating a platform so that people could debate ideas and come up with answers to, problem, to real world problems. Um, and I think the another thing that I really hope people take away from the book is um, for, for us, uh, for African-American studies in particular, but for um, people in general to really start to think about class. I mean, I think class remains an incredibly powerful uh, force that shapes black life. And there's no and, you know, we are, we're not going to kind of make advances in uh, black life by just ignoring it or downplaying it or like willfully wishing it away or seeing it as a kind of dishonest uh, means of us from issues of race or gender or sexuality. But we actually have to think through class and class is a very complex thing. Um, it's been complex. It's, it's just a complex thing in black life, but it's, it's, it's central. Um, and so those are some of the things I, wanted, I want people to take away from the book. I mean, I also hope that people, um, this book kind of challenges people's ideas about black narcissism. I think Black nationalism, you know, with all of its uh, strengths and limitations, it's been an incredibly uh, productive kind of um, soil. So many ideas have grown out of it. But, uh, you know, we have to look at it squarely and also uh, kind of wrestle with its limitations. But I think there's a way that Black nationalism gets dismissed as if it's not a really powerful and... um, Popular ideology amongst African Americans. Um, of course, it has its limitations, but it's it's still in Black communities. Every Black community you go to, you can find Black nationalist organizations, institutions, so forth and so on. And there's a reason for that. Um, so that's another thing I want people to kind of think about and think through. Um, I don't know. There's probably some others, but yeah, at the top, those are the that's them.
2: Got you. Well, thank you. And also, so last question.
1: What are you working on next? Yeah, this is a good question. So I've been, um, for a long time, I have been working and writing, doing research and toying with this book on, um, the contemporary state of black studies, African-American studies or Africana studies, you know, um, and that, that book has been in the works for a long time. I've done a lot of research interviews, so forth and so on, but it's been kind of slowed down, um by the pandemic, you know, I'm an archive rat. I really work through the archive. I like being in the archive and finding stuff in the archives, but that, you know, it's kind of hard with some of the travel restrictions. And so that's something I'm still working on. I'm still uh, really excited about it. But I've also more recently picked up, I've been toying with this new book idea, which is kind of about Black music, public housing, and ideas of crime. Um, And that book has been a little bit easier to make progress on Uh, a lot of the sources obviously because it's music they're digitized and so that's something that I'm also working on um I think it'll I mean it's connected to you know black music post 1970s so we'll see what happens with it um I'm, I'm excited about it but we'll see for sure well yeah
2: I'm looking forward to it And thanks again. So thank you so much, um, Dr. Fennison, for discussing your book with us, um, Building the Black Arts Movement, Hoyt Fuller, The Cultural Politics
1: of the 1960s. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.